Welcome to Chemistry with a Purpose, the podcast where we talk to brilliant innovators about the science and research that's affecting the lives of people around the world. My name is Jackie McAllen. I'm a communications expert who helps innovative companies tell their stories. And this is my co-host, Virpi. I'm Virpi Tanhitti. I'm part of Chemira's innovation team. Chemira is a global chemistry company, and we provide chemistry and expertise for water intensive industries, for example, water treatment and pulp paper industry. We help our customers to improve resource efficiency and implement circularity. And we are actively developing new sustainable technologies and, and sustainable solutions. I'm also responsible for Chemira's IP portfolio. And in this role, I want to make sure that patent and, and trademarks are not seen as an obstacle, but we are enabling collaboration with other parties and advance sustainable innovation. So in this episode, we're digging into the opportunities and challenges of developing fully biodegradable biopolymers from sugar. And our guest today is an innovation expert from IFF, an industry leader in food, beverage, scent, health, and biosciences. Welcome to the show, Christian Lengis. Hi, thanks for having me. I appreciate the time and looking forward to the discussion. All right, let's start with the basics. So first, can you tell us what are biopolymers? And please give us a few examples. Yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, uh, the name combines two features, right? Bio-based, bio-sourced, as well as polymers. Polymers are technical term for materials. Most things around you are constituted by polymeric materials. It starts from simple materials like cellulosic materials, your table in the kitchen, maybe, maybe a polymer all the way to more modern uh, structures that are based on synthetic materials. Like, you know, the shirt you may wear could be polyester. The laundry powder you use may include a number of synthetic materials to make sure your laundry comes out clean. And so when we say biopolymers, then it's really about making sure that these materials could come from a sustainable, ideally bio-based source material. So from woody biomass or from the starch world, from starch crops like wheat or corn. What is novel or only more recently developed has been a trend to convert bio-based feedstocks into building blocks that have been used in industry for decades, traditionally sourced from petroleum-based raw materials. Well, a lot of companies are uh, really uh, interested in biopolymers. So what, uh, what is driving that trend? Why? Yeah, I think that there's really multiple aspects coming together, right? Some are, are, you know, very, very traditional business aspects around supply chains and being able to diversify raw material risk and helping strengthen your own business operation. But others are also in response to consumer demand and consumer needs. And, and those are really driven by these macro drivers around overall sustainability, right? When we think about aspects like climate change, as well as pressure on resources. What comes to mind is how do we decarbonize uh, certain aspects, especially in the energy sector. There's lots of work going on. But also in the area of materials, uh, we are we're repeatedly asking the question, how can we transition from a fossil-based carbon source to a source that's more sustainable? That could be either recycled, it could be directly extracted from CO2, or it could come from the biosphere, which is essentially a biosourced material. When we say this, then I think there's a, there's a lot of interest to access those resources for broader use. And that gets us into the area of biomaterials and how they can be participating in an increasing scale in today's material needs and the material opportunity. 
And so when you go back to your question, right, what does it mean and how do we how do we respond to that? Then I think there's two aspects. How do consumers respond to that need? And what we have seen time and time again is that although consumers on the one side are motivated by a transition alternatives and are more sustainable alternatives, typically what we find is that consumers are not able and willing to give up performance of these products. And so that puts you in a, in a very interesting dynamic that you have to now innovate new materials that, that outperform materials that are incumbents based on value chains and, and manufacturing processes that have been used for decades. And that's in any industry a very tall order. But uh, because we have such, such a time pressure and urgency and consumer-driven attention to this space, an even more challenging hurdle to overcome. So again, the message here for this discussion is not only should it be bio based more sustainable, but it also has to outperform products that are already in the market. Very challenging to, to overcome, but we are working on those challenges within our organization and also together with Camero. How can you tackle that? I think this is exactly where at the end significant uh, time and resources are, are spent which is once you have a core technology or a core entry point into a material class that looks promising, you still have to go through your typical application development cycles and process development cycles to get to products that at the end can be competitive. Often across different industries, you, you are able to launch beachhead products, maybe entry points, but the expectations are always clear by many brand owners as well as downstream customers that ultimately the product performance has to be there. So simply put, if in an example, if you're innovating a more sustainable laundry polymer, you know, every study shows the consumers are not willing to sacrifice the cleanliness of their laundry or the product performance at the end. It has to match or exceed that performance. And laundry is just one example. You can go to textile products or you can go to industrial uh, polymer products. Uh, you know, if you have a process that requires the use of a polymer to keep water flowing or water clean, you, you cannot risk the operability of the process if you can go to a more sustainable product. That product may be at one point more sustainable if you compare it one by one to the traditional polymer, but risking a process shutdown and significant repairs that may overall impact the situation more significantly will not advance the sustainability of the overall operation. So that's maybe a few examples across different industries to give you that, that sense what innovation in this area requires. How, how do you see partnerships uh, in this context? All, all application spaces that I know of are have such a sufficient complexity that innovating in those becomes extremely difficult to do it all by yourself. And especially if you're focused on a, a certain core competence like IFF in this area, for example, on biotechnology and, and certain aspects of material science, uh, we are not experts across all the different end-use markets that we want to introduce these materials in and that are required in order to be commercially successful. That means it is critical in this, this challenge to uh, commercialize new materials that can really be meaningful at scale to work with partners to overcome those hurdles. And those partners can be co-development partners on the technology side. It can be application partners to address certain end-use areas that require specific expertise and application knowledge, as well as uh, you know, financial partners that help co-invest and shoulder the burden that it takes to commercialize new technologies. And I think, especially in the material world, where at the end of the day, steel has to be put in the ground, it still is a, a very capital-intensive space uh, that requires partnerships to be successful. 
Can you tell us more then about the partnership between IFF and Chimera? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting example how, how this can be set into practice, right? IFF has been working on new biotechnology approaches that use enzymes to catalyze uh, the polymerization of sugar molecules into polysugars, polysaccharides. Why is this interesting? Because these materials are inherently bio-based. They can really only be generated this way through biotechnology. So it's a unique technology fit and they're biodegradable. So in, in many ways, they have an interesting end-of-life profile that's attractive for a number of end users. For IFF, those materials are very interesting for our core markets, like home care, for example. What I mean with this is laundry detergents or dish detergents, as well as in the personal care market, where there's a significant trend to replace materials towards natural and bio-based and biodegradable materials. But those markets may not be and are not sufficient to fully go to scale. Also, these materials have significant opportunities in other markets that are not core to IFF. We've been looking for partners who are willing to participate in the technology risk to bring these materials to scale and are willing to also shoulder some of the burdens to take these materials to market. And Camira has been exceedingly interested in that and has been a great partner to look at these new technologies and materials in some of the markets that are relevant to Camira, for example, in water treatment or in paper strength and related spaces. So that's that makes up a good partnership across a number of core synergies in terms of application development and process development. One question of my favorite topic. So how, how do you see the role of IP in these partnerships? IP is kind of the currency for making this all work, right? Because uh, these fundamental technology developments just have such a time horizon and resource intensity that it's it's not easy to kind of go from the invention to commercial product that's manufactured at scale in, in a time frame that allows you to do this without having a solid foundation in, in terms of intellectual property. And it's not even just patents, but it's also the know-how that you accumulate and, and other understanding and technology insights that are part of the overall package. With these science-type businesses, it's really the currency that allows you to, to stay competitive and have a competitive advantage in the long run. Again, the problem is so large and the, the timelines are so compressed, not any one company is able to invest the type of capital to take this to scale like this was maybe done 40, 50 years ago. This is really requires multiple, multiple parties to be successful across different markets. And the way to keep everybody at the table and happy is, for example, IP as a currency. You mentioned uh, timelines being compressed. What, can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I mean, if, if you just benchmark to historically how material developments have taken place, right? So you, you've looked at, you know, the invention of a material piloting that's three, four, five years out. You go to the first commercial plant, that's another three, four, five years out. This, that plant has to come to scale. You have to sell the material. Then you consider a second plant. You go to a different geography. And then if you benchmark this, 20, 30 years go by and you have a good-sized business that has now successfully introduced a new material. Now, this started to change in the 90s and the 2000s when, for example, in Asia, large capacities of, of materials came very rapidly to scale in, in extensive capital investment programs. For example, polyester is a, is a great example. If you think through the, the proliferation of that technology into India and China. And so if you look at this from a lens of 2022, you just don't have 20 years to go through a maturity cycle of a new material technology. So you have to innovate on the business model side, on the scalability side, on the asset efficiency side, how to condense and collapse these cycles. 
But realistically speaking, even if we look at recent examples, you know, of new biomass materials that are emerging, we're still measuring in, in many years. Lots of people are working on this dilemma, but it is still one of the biggest hurdles in the room to, to really make this space successful. Speaking of hurdles, tell us a bit about the role of public policy. I understand that sometimes that's a hurdle. Of course, sometimes it's an opportunity. So how do you view policymaking in this area? Yeah, I mean, it's a very important topic because it can have direct impact on innovation strategies and also on business models that require significant investment into new manufacturing asset. And if you, for example, on the path to that, have policy change that allows you to uh, not utilize your material in certain areas or to require now extensive regulatory work that was not anticipated before, all these are impacts that will change your risk profile and your ability to be successful, especially in this in this intersection between material innovation as well as sustainability and policy-driven targets to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions as well as economic direction towards the future, it becomes very impactful if policy is designed to either support certain areas or create roadblocks for other areas uh, to be successful. And I think that's that's you know something that's that's of concern to the entire industry. Finding the right balance between what is driven through policy, what is driven through market forces is challenging. And, you know, as somebody who sits at the innovation end of that spectrum, I would always like to get a chance in the market to prove that new innovation is successful and can be viable. Well, we all hope that this will be a success in the future. So what are your expectations for, for that? Maybe a little bit midterm and then longer term, five and ten years? One of the key requirements for success here will be to bring the right stakeholders across the entire spectrum to the table. And this can be consumers, and, and that's already in good shape because consumers are in, in many ways this transition because there is a, a clear demand signal. You know, one is we have to engage the entire value chain. So this is not just, you know, product developers that are interacting with consumers or maybe brands that are pulling together various innovation potentials, but it also has to be the farmers that are providing, for example, feedstocks for bio-based transition. Uh, it's the biorefinery uh, part in the industry that are trying to align their assets and production schemes to support these transitions, as well as uh, the large industries that are already established and the emerging players that are, that are coming to the market that all play a role in this ecosystem. So the complexity of the task at hand and the extent of the transformation that's being desired are such that not any single solution is going to be successful on its own. It's going to require multiple of these approaches to work in parallel and to be successful. And so my, my last little point on that is also that we are hopefully getting more awareness by folks who are in the policy area to not create additional hurdles and, and barriers that need to be overcome, but rather help these multiple solutions come together to get to a, a final, you know, better opportunity. It's a daunting task and it's a long road ahead, but it's, it's an innovation-driven road. And I think if you look at the materials industry over the last many decades, that's really what's catalyzed the transformation of many end-use industries and many markets that consumers enjoy today. Well, I think you've led us perfectly into the recurring segment, the last thing that we always ask every guest, since you're talking about materials innovation and catalysts for change. What do you think is the greatest chemical innovation of all time in your personal opinion? That's a very tough one to, to single out any single one. If I can 
give my top three that maybe that's allowed. By all means. <laughs> I'm a traditionalist. I always go with the Haber-Bosch process because it's always such a groundbreaking way of getting industry to an entire different place in terms of agriculture as well as in lots of industrial uses. The next one is actually, you know, birth control. I think that was in a traumatic chemical in innovation in the 50s to, to identify compounds uh, and scale them and commercialize them that can change entire societies. And I think the, the last one would be the CRISPR technology that's just been now getting to scale and will, will also dramatically change the way we, we implement biotechnology across many different markets. I think those are great answers. Thank you for sharing. And just in general, thank you for joining us today. It's been wonderful talking to you and picking your brain about the future of biopolymers, the opportunities and challenges. And good luck to you at IFF and good luck in the collaboration with Chimera. Thanks again for joining the show. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you.